Psalm number 11, Psalm 11, and our theme this evening as we study this psalm is confidence in times of crisis, confidence in crisis. Well, it's been well proven that human beings have something of an inbuilt tendency to respond in one of two ways when we face danger, fight or flight, fight or flight. Let's say you're walking down some dark street some night and you see an attacker coming toward you. Adrenaline will surge through you. Natural instincts will take over. And perhaps without even really thinking about it, either you will stand your ground and and try to fight that attacker or, which might be more likely for most of us, you'll run away as quickly as you can. You'll, You'll take flight, so to speak. Fight or flight. And King David, of course, the author of Psalm 11, he faced all kinds of life-threatening situations, not just when he was a young man, but all throughout his life. He spent about 10 years of his life knowing that King Saul was trying to kill him. When David was finally rightly recognized as king himself, uh, he had to deal with fighting off enemies from other nations for most of his life. And then, of course, he also had to deal with the rebellion of his own son, Absalom. And so King David knew what it was to face those moments of fight or flight. We don't know which of those situations prompted David to write Psalm 11, but it is certainly written with a fight or flight moment in mind. And if you're a believer this evening, if you're a Christian, you're going to face fight or flight moments in your Christian life. And no doubt many of you already have faced those moments. Moments of crisis and threat arrive in the Christian life and we are tempted perhaps at times to try and ignore it or to run away but at those times as well we know also that we should stand our ground in faith by God's grace and David here in Psalm 11 helps us to think through in advance how to handle those fight or flight moments, those times of crisis and challenge and fear that come along in the Christian life. Notice first of all then this evening the crisis. The crisis. David clearly wrote this psalm as I say. Having just received terrible news. I should have said before we read the psalm. But just notice now that most of the first half of the psalm. Is a quote. David is sharing with us what other people are saying to him. Uh, so if you notice there in, in, in verse 1, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? So here's what people are saying to him. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, again, this is what others are saying to him. Verse 2, behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. And so someone has reported to David and is urging David basically to run away. Run away, David, because his enemies are poised to attack. The language is vivid here. It says they have bent the bow. What more is there to do once you've bent the bow except to release the arrow? Uh, And so an attack is imminent here. They're saying your enemies are about to fire at you, David. Maybe David is using a picture here to describe... Uh, to describe just people gossiping or, or, or assassinating his character, so to speak. Maybe this was an actual physical assassina- assassination attempt 
that David is calling to mind here. Either way, friends, his enemies are poised. They are ready. The arrows are about to rain down on David. The report to David also says that they are going to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. That's the second half of verse 2. They're going to shoot in the dark. Uh, And the, the idea is here that they're subtle. They are deceptive. You're not going to see them coming. David can't be sure where and when exactly the attack is going to come. Darkness is often a picture in the Bible for uncertainty, for threat, for people getting away with things under the cover of darkness. And so friends, here is a serious crisis facing God's chosen king. An attack is imminent, the danger is real, the source is perhaps unknown. And faced with this threat, the advice to David is very simple. Verse 1, flee like a bird to your mountain. Look also at verse 3. Look at the the sense of doom and despair here in verse 3. Again, this is still the report that David is getting. Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's a very pessimistic outlook. Here's a very defeatist attitude from David's advisors, what more can we do? It's, it's just all, it's, it's, it's over, David. We may as well not even stand to fight anymore. The foundations are destroyed. Maybe there's corruption in government. Maybe there's a breakdown in good law enforcement. Maybe the people have turned against him. The advice that David gets is there's nothing to be done but to run. But does David run on this occasion? Is David despairing in this occasion? No. Look how the psalm begins in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. In Yahweh, the, the mighty God of Israel. The very first word of the psalm in the original language is that name of God, Yahweh. Remember we said this morning as Boaz was in the threshing floor with Ruth potentially facing temptation in that moment, the first thing Boaz did was to name the name of God. And here similarly, friends, David, in a time of crisis, names God. He, he names the name of his saviour, his refuge, his fortress, his trust. And what does David make of this report that he's been given? Verse 1. How can you say to my soul? Say, how can you say this? How can you be so negative and pessimistic and hopeless when you know who, who I'm trusting in, when you know who my God is? As one writer says, David's advisors are assuming that keeping away from any kind of trial or difficulty should be David's top priority at all times. Uh, that's what people that's what people are, are assuming as they advise David. Well, I assume David, you don't want any trouble. I assume you just want to get away and escape and hide. No, that's not how David thinks about it. David knows that perhaps he is outnumbered, perhaps he is under imminent threat, perhaps the situation is very severe, but his confidence is not in himself. His confidence is is in Yahweh, the Lord, who will help him to take his stand. 
What's your natural response when you face trouble? Is it fight or flight? Do you tend to run or do you tend to resist? And this is not to say that it is always wrong for Christians to get away from danger of one kind or another. David himself, you remember when Absalom attacked Jerusalem, David did leave. He came back eventually, but at first he did choose to leave. So it's not always about standing and fighting as the only right course of action. But sometimes, friends, we can, we can try to just ignore trouble. We can, we can try to run away from tests and trials, assuming that God has no good purpose in it. This will be the temptation for Christians in our culture as our society gets further and further away from God's word. The temptation will be to just turn in in, in an increasingly bigger and bigger holy huddle. Uh, ignoring the world around us, not witnessing to the world around us, not risking jobs or reputation or even at times life or freedom to make known the gospel. Our beliefs are becoming less and less acceptable to the world. Pro-life, pro-biblical definitions of marriage and so forth. As we face these pressures, are we tempted to flee like a bird? Are we tempted to turn in and just let the world do what it wants and we'll just ignore it the best we can? Or what about when we're met with trials and heartaches personally, pain of one kind or another? Do we become angry, resentful, fretful? Or do we declare, in the Lord, I take refuge? I quoted Alistair Begg a few weeks ago in another psalm. There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. Even in the face of death itself, the worst crisis of all, faith in God says, I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to behave as though everything's hopeless, the way David's advisors were acting. I look to the Lord and I find refuge in him. And so, friends, as we see people lost in sin, as we perhaps see leaders in our land making foolish decisions, as we see immorality celebrated and reveled in, these are things that, yes, grieve us. Yes, we wish it wasn't like this. But we must resist the temptation to bury our heads, to turn in and wait for it all to go away. David had advisors, people perhaps with his best interests at heart, telling him to run away. And that just goes to show us that sometimes even the people that care about us most don't always advise us the best. You remember the Apostle Paul at one point towards the end of the book of Acts? He's he's going to Jerusalem. He's determined to go there to witness to the Jewish people one last time. And some of Paul's friends didn't want them to go. There was even a prophecy that when he went to Jerusalem, he would be bound and imprisoned by the Jews and his friends didn't want him to go. They were concerned for Paul's physical safety and peace. Sometimes we need to be discerning and we need to consider what is God's will. And David considers the advice, perhaps even of his closest friends here. He looks at the crisis and he remains confident in the, despite the crisis. And so that's what we'll think about secondly. We've thought about the crisis. Let's then think about the confidence. The confidence. And this is the second half of the psalm, verses 4 to the end. 
And David gives us at least three reasons to be confident in times of crisis, whatever form that crisis may take, personal or or more widespread. First of all, David shows us that we can be confident because of the Lord's rule. Confident because of the Lord's rule. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now the word temple here we need to understand. It doesn't necessarily refer only to the uh, a physical building. Whether the tabernacle in David's day. Or, or the temple that came after David's day. Uh, the temple that Solomon built. Uh, the word temple here. It's, it's another way of describing God's rightful place. The fact that God has a secure throne on which he rules. And that's what David is saying here. As he gets this advice. As people point out to him all the problems and threats and, and, and potential enemies. David says, well, look, one thing that hasn't changed is God is ruling. God is in his dwelling place. None of these threats are new to God. Nothing has taken him by surprise. His timing is perfect. His decisions are right. And no one can question his rule. And we too, friends, need to consider the confidence that it gives us to know that God is ruling He's ruling your life. He's ruling my life. He's ruling our church's life. He's ruling our nation's life. When you face a difficult situation in work, maybe with a colleague or some challenge you're facing in the workplace, remember the Lord's throne is in heaven. He rules your office or your ward or your classroom. When you open the messages on your phone that are full of bad news, Or when you have to work through sin and repentance. When you're tempted to look at. When you're tempted to look at or say or do what you shouldn't. When you grieve and mourn. Remember the Lord's throne is in heaven. David's language is vivid in verse 4. He says God's eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Of course, God does not have physical eyes as we do, and David knows that. But this is, this is picture language. I wonder if you ever sat under the stare of, of a, maybe a very strict teacher or a strict parent, or you've just felt like someone's gaze is fixed upon you. Well, David says God's gaze is fixed upon every single one of us all the time. When we come back to Revelation later this year, God willing, several times... Uh, we see images of, uh, it says, the seven spirits of God or creatures that have eyes all around them. And it's, again, emphasizing the all-seeing God. No attack or crisis facing us, friends, goes unnoticed by God. He is reigning. And that should give us confidence. So David is confident because of the Lord's rule. Secondly, he's confident because of the Lord's righteous judgment. The Lord's righteous judgment. Look at verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Not only does God see everything that's going on in our world, he comes to right decisions, right judgments about what's going on in our world. And so when you see a little baby being 
passed over a barbed wire fence to a soldier in an airport because there's nowhere else safe for that baby to be. And you think of the injustice of that situation, friends. God sees that too. When you see a crooked businessman or a a dangerous criminal escaping lightly from punishment, God sees that too. When you see someone in your workplace or your school getting away with something they shouldn't, God sees that too. How does he feel about it? Verse 5. Here it is, friends, in black and white. His soul hates the wicked. Hates the wicked. Yes, we're to love lost people. And we're to share the gospel with them. And we are to urge people to receive forgiveness from Christ. But friends, here it is in the black and white of God's word. God hates the wicked. And unless the wicked repent, God will pour out his wrath upon them. And we need to understand it's not either or. Some people, all they, all they talk about is God is love. Yes, God is love. Jesus Christ is the great demonstration and display and assurance of God's love. But God also hates the wicked. Both those things are true at once. Both are true that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes and amen. And also God hates the wicked. God is absolutely perfect, holy and righteous. There isn't a speck of imperfection in him. There's no inclination in God toward sin or injustice of any kind. God is righteous and he will judge in righteousness. And friends, that is good news for Christians, for all people. Verse 5 says, God tests the righteous. That means he permits his people to go through trials and pains. None more so than his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's with the result that we will grow stronger in our faith. Just as a seed goes into a ground and, and dies so that it can then flourish and be fruitful. God does permit us to go through tests and trials. But with the wicked, God sees them. And God will judge them. And that is good news. It means that wickedness won't be allowed to go on in this world forever. That the end will come. And there will be a new beginning. And a far better world than this one to come. It means that all the wrongs will be put right. All the poor and marginalised and abused will be comforted. All the abusers will be punished. All the crimes will be solved. All the injustices will be brought to an end. Because God sees and God knows. And God's judgment will be the final and righteous judgment. So David is confident in crisis because of God's rule. Because of God's righteous judgment. And the last reason for David's confidence is because of the Lord's retribution. Because of the Lord's retribution. And if you want to know what I mean by that, look at verse 6. Verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now it's a bit of a, a pet subject for some, particularly sometimes those who are 
who, who perhaps preach in the open air, preach in the street, quite often you'll hear them use language like this. And of course, it's good that, we, that preachers do quote language like this and impress upon people the seriousness of the, the punishment that awaits our sin. But there should be no sense of there should be no sense of joy or, you know, pride in any preacher who speaks about this. These are some of the most solemn, sobering, serious words you could ever read or preach. He will rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That language calls to mind what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember back in the early in Genesis. How God saw these two particularly wicked cities and rained sulfur and fire down upon them. They were completely destroyed. And that's a picture, friends, for the retribution, the punishment, the avenging that God will carry out one day on the wicked One writer says, Sodom stands in the Bible as a reminder of perpetual and final judgment. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, friends, is a picture of what will happen to God's enemies forever in hell. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 17, verse 28 and following. Jesus says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Listen to Jesus. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's Jesus, meek and mild, who was, some would have us believe, just a good teacher who said nice things. No, friends, Jesus says retribution is coming. Fire and sulfur will rain down on the wicked. We don't like to think about this. All of us know and love people who, if they do not repent, are going to face this, this this torment, this retribution from God on their sin. They're going to be cast into a place of eternal pain and anguish. And if that all sounds a bit much, a bit over the top, it only goes to show that we don't hate sin as much as God does and we don't take it as seriously as he does. He hates it. He hates it. He hates what we would call just a tiny lie. He hates what some would refer to as the harmless fun of sexual sin. He hates the the abusers and the abuses. He hates the injustice. He hates the greed. He hates our pride. And our selfishness. And he will send Christ not only to judge it all. But to punish it all. One writer says people may bemoan the doctrine. That's the doctrine of God's justice. But unless there is decisive judgment. There is no solid salvation. Unless there is decisive judgment, there is no solid salvation. What did Jesus come to save us from if God isn't going to punish sin? And if God isn't perfectly just, 
And if he isn't going to deal with all the sin and injustice of our world, what hope is there? If there is no perfect God, who is going to sort everything out? Who will bring an end to all the things that are wrong in this world? What is the point of trying to live according to God's law and to live increasingly righteous lives? What's the point of doing anything for anyone? If sin isn't going to be punished, if Jesus isn't going to come back, there would be no point if there was no God. But there is a God. And his retribution is coming. Payback for all the sin of the world. If the Taliban do not repent, they will burn. If those who take to the streets celebrating lifestyles that are depraved and destructive do not repent, they will burn. And if the good people, the the so-called good people, who work hard, clean living, keep, keep themselves out of trouble, who are model citizens, but who just think they don't need God, if they don't repent, they will burn as well. Our world will not always be the way it is today. God is missing nothing. He is letting no one away with anything. And one day, friends, his retribution will be poured out. And so we must not lose heart as Christians when we face temptations, when we look at the society that is crumbling around us, morally speaking, when we look at the injustice that seems to go unchecked. Friends, be confident. God is ruling. God will bring righteous judgment. God will bring retribution. So we've seen the crisis, we've thought about the confidence, and thirdly and finally this evening, the comfort, the comfort. Look at verse 7, verse 7. The Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. Who gets to behold the face of Yahweh, the face of the Lord? David says it's the one who does righteous deeds, it's the one who stands before God for judgment And can be declared absolutely blameless. It's the one in whom God the judge finds nothing that is wrong or wicked. Who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who can see the face of Yahweh. Is the one covered in perfect righteousness. Friends for that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was tempted to run away. His whole life, the sort of reports that came to David also came to Jesus. The Pharisees at one point, uh, they got so fed up trying to catch Jesus out in regard to the law. They just said, get away from here. Herod's trying to kill you. Jesus said, I'm going nowhere. You can tell that fox that I am on my way to do my father's will. We read earlier how Jesus was tempted at the very beginning of his ministry by Satan. Essentially, Satan tempting him not to go the way of the cross and the way of pain and the way of crisis. And Jesus stood his ground and fought by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. When Jesus told his 12 disciples that he would be put to death when he arrived in Jerusalem, Peter said, Never, Lord, it's never going to happen. And again, in Peter's words, Jesus heard the hiss of the serpent, the the temptations of the evil one not to go the way of crisis, the way of the cross. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
I'm not going to flee like a bird. The Lord tests the righteous and the Lord will reward the righteous. Even in his final moments hanging on the cross, what did the mockers shout to Jesus? Come down. Save yourself if you really are the Son of God. You could say they were saying to Jesus, flee like a bird. But he didn't. He didn't flee, he fought. He stayed on the cross in obedience to his heavenly Father. And he experienced the wrath of God raining down upon him for the sins of the world. But afterwards, what happened? He rose again. He ascended into heaven, having been tested and tried. The Father invited the Son to sit down on his throne. And if by faith, friends, if by faith we have his righteousness to cover over all our sin, then we will get to see his face someday. Our God, our King, our Shepherd, the upright shall behold his face. We won't be declared upright because of any of our own good deeds. We can only be declared upright through the, through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will get to be with our God and our Saviour and our fellow believers forever. It's an ongoing picture all throughout the Old Testament to see the face of God, is to have fellowship with God, is to be welcomed into the dwelling place of God, it's to enjoy God forever. And even those who are hardened against us, even those who have persecuted us and sued us and hated us and mocked us, if they would repent, they would get to see the face of Jesus too. And so we're not just to go out on the the streets or wherever else God sends us as witnesses and to talk about fire and brimstone. We also need to urge people to repent and to, uh, to trust in the uprightness of Christ to cover over their sin and to see him one day. I wonder, are you either here in the building or listening in from elsewhere this evening? Do you need to repent? What would happen to you if the Lord Jesus returned This very night, would you be standing before him upright because of his sacrifice on your behalf? Or would you be facing the punishment for your own sin? To be a Christian, friends, is to be looking forward in faith, in confidence, to seeing the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. You haven't seen him yet, that doesn't mean you don't love him. Ralph Davis tells the story of a man called William Dyke who became blind at a very young age, but he worked hard, he studied diligently. He met a beautiful young woman and they became very close friends and and this woman agreed to marry him. And around the time they were planning their wedding, a doctor told William that he believed he knew what the problem was with his eyes and that he could provide a cure William underwent special surgery and he got the bandages off his eyes on his wedding day. And that day he saw his wife for the very first time. But he, although he started seeing her that day, he had already been loving her for a long time. For the gentleness, for the care, the faithfulness that she had shown toward him. 
If you're a Christian, you, you haven't seen Jesus yet, but you love him for all that he has done for you. And you're looking forward to seeing him one day. You're going to see the face of Jesus. That's the comfort for us as we fight the attacks of the world and the temptations of Satan. We're going to see the face of Jesus. That's our comfort as we mourn the loss of our loved ones. If they die in faith, friends, they today are seeing the face of Jesus. This is our comfort in a chaotic and dark and sinful world. We're going to see the face of Jesus. How do we earn that place where we can't earn it ourselves? We're not going to see him because we're better than anyone else. More righteous than anyone else. But because he is gracious and merciful. Because he did not run away from crisis. But stood his ground and endured the wrath of God on the cross. That's how we can see his face someday. And so are you motivated day by day, dear friend, by the thought of seeing the face of Jesus and dwelling forever with him and his people? If you are, you will have increasing confidence in crisis. And you can live with the comfort that at the end you will see him at last and you will realize then that life, real life, everlasting life, is only just beginning. Amen.